This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 12, Episode 41. This is Writing Excuses, Raising the Stakes. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Mary. I'm Marianne. And I'm Wesley. And we're going to talk about <laughs> raising the stakes and making it more personal. Uh, this is in the novel month. We want to specifically talk about how you can continue to raise stakes for a story across a long period of time. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you that. How do you keep readers' interest through the long form? How do you keep them to keep? How do you get them to keep reading something so long? I mean, really, for a novel length piece, you know, we were talking about an overall plot that will span, you know, the hundred thousand words that that comes to the novel. Hundred thousand, mm. or, or half <laughs> half a novel, or, or Act One of, of, of Brandon's book. But then, also within that hundred thousand words in the main plot, are a bunch of smaller plots, smaller scenes that you know really come together that are always continually raising the stakes in, in different ways. Okay. What are some of those ways? So, for, for example, um, in, in The Rise of Io, it's, you know, there, there's, a, there, there's the main plot for the, for the character who is, you know, who has been inhabited by an alien and she's trying to not only survive, you know, the, the whole encounter, but she's also trying to figure out who she is. But on top of that, she's also a con woman who is on mm-hmm. the run from gangsters and she is... Uh, dealing with the, the fact that she lives in, in a slum. So you're talking about adding some subplots and things like this to raise the stakes? A, a subplots that help build environment to develop the character. And also, it, it's an incremental, it's an it's a, it's a incremental, I guess, I'm trying to figure the right word for it. Um, you're, you're ratcheting things up slowly. Yeah, and I think this is the thing when, when we're talking about when we're talking about raising the stakes, what we're looking for are ways to make things worse for the, the character. And I think that there's—I'm going to talk about two basic paths that you can take. One is that you can still have the same thing that can go wrong, um, but you can make the failure point of that worse. So uh, if, if, for instance, you know, the, um, the, the popular kid is afraid that people are going to— uh, to discover that that they <clears throat> they are homeless. Right. Okay, that's a bad failure point. Mm-hmm. But it can become worse if people discover that they are homeless. The failure point can be worse if, as a consequence to that, that could lead to them being put into foster care and taken away from their family. So right. it's the same failure. It's the same the same thing is at stake. I don't want people to find out that I'm homeless. But the failure point can become worse and worse and worse and worse. Right, right. I had this in college when I was a professor. Uh, actually, I still am. But it was more uh, – it happened a lot more when I was teaching freshman comp that if somebody failed, that was bad. But if a student from another country failed – that would that could be even worse, right? It could mean they didn't meet their credit requirements and they could get shipped home. Getting met, uh, your parents angry at you is one thing. Getting shipped back, you know, to uh, if you're doing study abroad 
and losing your ability to continue at school is even worse. Yeah. And so this sort of thing, yeah, you can, you can make that failure more drastic. So the consequences of, mm-hmm. of everything that happens. I'd like to connect to that. It's, it's funny. I was also thinking about parent-child conflicts um, and school. But I, I kind of want to take a step back because I think when I'm trying to figure out what the stakes of my story are and the stakes for the characters, um, I tend to go back to what do I care about? What is frightening to me? What is at stake for me? What am I emotionally invested in? Because I I feel that that I I write that more convincingly. Okay. And so and so for example, when when I was in college, we had this South Asian students group meeting where we all sat around in a circle and it was this kind of you know, encounter session kind of thing. And we were talking about what are we afraid of and what's what's it like being here in college. And 95% of us were wanted to talk about dating and how we were terrified that our parents would find out. And we were really, really scared about it, right? Because it was a huge deal. And there was one girl who, in fact, her parents had found out that she was dating a white boy and they had cut her off and she had to drop out of college for two years until she could reapply independently for financial aid. And it was, it was you know, it is potentially your whole family on the line. And then there were a couple of people who were like, oh, wow, my parents are totally cool. This is just not an issue for me. So I think that's always made me think when I'm setting up a story of, like, what are the issues for my character? And they're not necessarily going to be universal issues, right? That's a really good point. So, for example, like, the world is ending. Wow, Mm. that sucks. But Mm -hmm. then for the character, what does that mean that the world is ending? It's, you know, suddenly my child will never grow up and Mm -hmm. they'll experience a full life. You know, my my, my loved ones will—so there's— all these stakes. I'll never finish this novel. Yeah. No. So I'm seeing two— I'm at 90% of the novel, and I'll never finish. <laughs> well, and you don't even— Sorry. Sorry, two different general themes here. One is what Mary was saying earlier, which is make it more specific. Um, mm-hmm. Make it make the consequence a little rougher by making more specificity in their life. And the other one's another kind of take on the same thing. But you're saying make it more personal. Let us know the personal— Uh, consequences of this failure. Yeah, and a lot of times that is the thing that makes the failure point worse. It's like, um, you know, oh, if if we don't do this, the drinking water could become contaminated. And everyone agrees that's a bad idea. But as soon as you know, you know, if the the main character then meets one of the little kids who's drinking that water, then that that is actually all by itself making the failure point worse because it has become personal for the main character, even without actually adding any complications to it. So that's one way that you can actually raise the stakes without adding plot points. And I think you can keep interrogating yourself as mm-hmm. a writer because these, like my awareness of, of consequence has changed. It changes every year, right? Like, so last year I was diagnosed with breast cancer and I'm fine now. But one thing I realized, like the day I was diagnosed is that I suddenly had this terror that I was not going to be around long enough to tell my kids everything they would need to know. And mm-hmm. I was like, I wanted to, like, go and record video messages to them, like, for hours to, like, here's all the wisdom I have, you know, just in case. And I, it would not have occurred to me a week beforehand that that would be, like, the biggest issue in my life, right? Yeah, and I think when when <clears throat> we talk about— and I think when we talk about write what you know— that's the kind of thing people are talking about. It's not, oh, you must write your life experience. It's that you can take things that you know, that the deep emotions, and extrapolate from them into settings that your characters are experiencing. Um, one of the other things that I, I think you can do um, 
is that you can, and this is a, a thing that happens a lot with try-fail cycles, that you can introduce a new problem that has been caused by a previous solution. You know, um, like, uh, for example, in, in the southern United States, they were having problems with soil erosion. So they introduced this plant called kudzu. And if you've ever been in the South— It looks so cool. It is this great ecological faux pas. It's a disaster. It's a but disaster. But it looks so cool. Yeah. Why, why does it look cool? I mean, now, now it, looks like, it looks like the Zerg have arrived. They are taking over the ecology with this alien creature. What? That you go drive along the road and you just see this, this vines covering everything and turning it into an alien landscape. Yeah, and the, they will just go over houses and— it, it is it is a disaster, and it's it's this thing where this new problem has arisen. They solved the erosion problem. That problem has been solved. See, that goes back to one of the plotting methods you taught us a few years ago, which is the yes, but, no, and. Yeah. Where it's always make it worse, always make it worse. But oh, I'll have a question for you guys after the book of the week, but let's stop for the book of the week because you're going to tell us about the incredible adventures of Cinnamon Girl. Yes, the incredible adventures of Cinnamon Girl. This was a book that I picked up when I was in Australia, and I'm like, I would like to read an Australian author uh, and that that I'm not familiar with and picked this up on the recommendation of a bookstore owner, which is why we support local bookstores. And it's amazing. It is. It's a young adult novel, and... It begins with um, signs of the end of the world, that there's there's legitimate signs that the apocalypse is coming and that specifically the, the focal point of the apocalypse is going to be this small town in Australia. And it, so it is totally this end of the world novel, but the author pulls off some incredibly surprising things in that, um, and it's hard to talk about in some ways without spoiling one of the the kind of fun things. But you you spend a lot of the novel going, wait, is the world actually going to end or is it not? And she manages to raise the stakes for the characters, which you wouldn't think was possible when the book begins with the world is about to end. But she does it by getting more specific and more personal. The characterization is great. Um, it's also a very body-positive novel, uh, and it's just – it's fantastic. I loved the heck out of it. The author Excellent. is uh, Melissa Keel, K-E-I-L. Excellent. That sounds really cool. It is a fantastic book. So back on the topic, let me ask you guys. Um, we have this sort of raise the stakes, yes, but, no, and. All of this stuff that's going to keep us tense on the edge of our seats – doesn't this just get old across the course of a long story? Doesn't it just get frustrating for the reader? How do you not have that illusion break down? I, mean, I, I feel like it, you, you can't write an entire novel like, like pedal to the metal. I think there's yeah. got to be times when you got to like pull back a little, let the reader catch their breath. So is know. it occasionally do you need to ha- have a yes, no con? You know, we fixed this one. We're okay. Uh, for those who don't know, yes, but no, and you plot by saying, what is our conflict? They try something and solve it. Does it work? Yes, but, but. it causes a bigger problem. Now Kudzu is taking over. <clears throat> no, and Kudzu is taking over, and we still have the original problem. Well, yeah. it, it, that sort of thing. Can you occasionally have a yes well, period? I mean, as a reader, I think I really appreciate um, rest points. 
right? Mm-hmm. I like a chance to breathe, a chance to just delight in like, oh, these characters are having a small, intimate, funny, romantic, whatever moment that's just enjoyable. Um, and, I, and you know, we can you can kind of lean on the structure of the book, right? If there are 200, 300 pages left as a reader, you know that something else bad is coming, that it's not just we're not at the happy ever after. So we'll, we'll just enjoy the little rest. And then we turn the page and and we're going to be plunged into it again. I mean, there's, there's different formats. I mean, you look at a lot of movies that are thriller movies where basically it's you are on the run the entire time. Anytime you solve something, something it gets even worse. Um, I, 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 there's, there's, there's a... There's a series of movies that, that yeah. does that. Like, yeah, yeah, lots of, them, lots of them do that. Right. But I will say, I, part of the reason I'm asking this question is because occasionally in thrillers, about halfway through, I'm just emotionally done. I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm not invested anymore. <laughs> You've lost me. The first half was super gripping. And then— You're exhausted. I, I, I just can't—oh, it's of course it's going to go wrong in some ridiculously over-the-top way. Of course there's going to be, yeah, we fixed this, but now there's scorpions in my shoes. I mean, that sort of thing breaks down for me eventually. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think one of the the kind of mental metaphors that I think about is that that constructing a story is much like constructing a stairway, that that things are going up for the, the character, but at a certain point you have to have plateaus, you have to have a level spot so that you can just catch your breath and continue forward. Um, but those still are always forward. There's a sense of progression. Um, the, the You see this done badly when you see the thing where the characters are, you know, things are going wrong, things are going wrong, and then we have the seemingly unrelated happy scene in the cafeteria where everyone seems fine. Right. And then and then you know, oh, everyone is happy right now. The, something bad is about to happen. So the challenge is to provide that sense of rest while while giving still that that sense of uh, this this rest moment has is serving a, a function. Otherwise, people are like, all this rest moment is doing is setting me up for the next thing. I can't enjoy it because I'm too tense for Mm -hmm. what's coming next. I would also, I'm I'm thinking like, I enjoy reading cozy mysteries. I enjoy reading funny romances. You know, these not have sort of thriller pacing to them, right? And there is a tension, but it's a quiet tension. There's a lot of... um, a lot of the book are people sitting around and having conversations and knitting and, you know, et cetera. But nonetheless, it's gripping because there is a question that was raised at the beginning and it's a question that matters. The stakes are high for the reader. I mean, what is more important than love? You know, like it's it's a big deal. Boy. And so and so that, that can be enough to carry you. And I'm, I'm thinking yeah. in genre, Nicola Griffith's Hild is, I think, a really interesting mm. book. Hild is really interesting because it is um, told very quietly. It's, it's a brilliant um, Norse-type um, story with a young girl as the protagonist, and Griffith is a, a beautiful writer. And there is a tension that grows incrementally over the course of the book, and it just gets—she turns it up a tiny bit in every chapter. Mostly it's very domestic. It's this little girl kind of, like, learning how to navigate her world, and she's doing handwork and cooking and whatever else. But you can feel the looming 
disaster. And this is a really good point that a lot of times early career writers will raise the stakes too fast and too high. And that's the thing that I think is hard to sustain. When I was writing Shades of Milk and Honey, the my instinct was to put in evil overlords to have it was just like all of my fantasy training was so it was so hard not to to do that because that's what I read. And and it would have been it would have been a disservice to the novel. One right, because that's based on an on Austin Nop, kind yes. of kind yeah. of model, yeah. right? Where like it is a complete disaster if someone turns away from you instead of speaking to you when you walk into the room, right? Like that's that's enough. I, I think yeah. This is a really good point. Spacing out how you raise the stakes, even backing up on the stakes for your beginning. Despite all of our discussion of you need to start strong, right? Well, starting strong can be I've just broken up with someone. I am looking for someone else. Hey, I've got a nice fling. Hey, I'm getting attached. Yeah. Hey, I found this person I've been looking for forever, and now they're moving to Australia. Like, that (laughs) is a raising of stakes that's very personal to someone, but also has an escalation. I mean, one one example that that I think really clearly illustrates what Mary's talking about is uh, Jessica Jones. Mm. If you look look at it, it's it's 10 episodes Mm. of Jessica fighting the Kilgrave. Okay, no spoilers. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, So, but like— I'm going to give you some spoilers. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. So in the middle, like, they kind of raised the stakes right away so that they caught him by, like, episode five. But then not, they're like, well, we've got five more episodes. What do we do with him? So they let him go. <laughs> and then they catch him again. <laughs> and, and literally for, like, three, four episodes, that's all they do because they've already gone to the very end and they have time to spare. Yeah. Mm. So this is a, an, a fine example of, you know, if you've got this really epic— you know, finishing shot, you don't want to throw away your shot really early. Uh, the other thing that I think that you can do uh, in addition to, to this kind of thing is um, delayed consequences are sometimes a way to uh, keep the stakes raised. Uh, and this was answer- going back to the question that you had asked earlier, Brandon, about whether or not you can ever just close an arc. Yeah. And I think that you that if you ever just have a, a yes— that 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 does close that question, but that you can have a yes dot dot dot, but and have the but come later. Right, we've we've delayed this. I think you're right. That happens a lot, like in epic fantasy. We say this is a big problem. We have put a band aid on it. This will be a dangerous thing later on. You see it all the time in films that are planning a sequel mm-hmm. as well. Though now we have to deal with this other evil, but. You know, yeah. I, yeah. I think this is this is a good way. Another, I have a story, the story Seven Cups of Water, where it has escalation, and every night it escalates a little bit more. And one of the things that worked really well in that story is that the sort of next to last night, it de-escalates suddenly, and you're like, wait, we're we're kind of off that track anymore, and we're we're going somewhere else. We're no longer engaged in that. And then it comes back, right? And you're like, oh, no, we did not actually solve this. We are right back in the midst of it, and now it's really bad. This has been a great discussion. I'm going to have to call it here, but I do have some homework for you guys. I want you to try out a few of the things that we've talked about in this episode, specifically raising the stakes, number one, by making try taking a side character from a story you're working on and raise the stakes for what's going on for them. I want you to try by making it more personal first, but I'm not going to let you use the crutch that a lot of us use. 
that they have lost someone in their past or that it's it's personal because this is the person that killed their mentor or something like that. It can't be related to the loss of a loved one. Um, no fridging. Yes, I... Let's let's just make that one not on the on the table, and just see what you can do with that. Then, and then make it more specific. Try to make it a little less epic, but more specific to the person, um, and try that. Try that instead, um, and see if this raises the stakes for you in interesting ways for your story. Well, this has been writing excuses. You're out of excuses now. Go write. Writing excuses is a Dragon Steel production. Jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 